You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that in before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me with those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, uh, seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all of the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." 
And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a quarter, corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserve, to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word to us. And so now we do pray, as we have already sung, that you would help us to understand it, that you would uh, seek your servant through your servant, the Lord Jesus, that you would call us to, to serve you more with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind through sitting under your word this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is a torch day. Aaron and Rachel are making their way up here. So if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to join Aaron and Rachel in thinking about Acts 26 and the goings-on of Paul over the past few chapters of Acts, uh, you can Pied Piper your way out right behind Aaron. Yes. Uh, well, many of you might know about the shift in Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. knew that this was likely the largest audience that he would ever have in his life. Likely 250,000 people in person that day on the mall in Washington, D.C., and nationally broadcast on all the major news networks. Uh, so this speech needed to be good. He had a speech writing team put the whole speech together, and the night before, he had an, even another uh, team go over every single word that he would say. And then they submitted the text of that speech as an advance copy to the national media. But there, at the podium, in the stifling heat, as he carefully read, he, it was amounting to not much more than a lecture on the history of the civil rights movement in America. When, behind him, the gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, who was right behind him, she shouted, tell him about the dream, Martin. And then a shift in the speech happens. Martin Luther King had talked about a dream that he had had for America many, many times in off-the-cuff speeches uh, at churches and at civil rights gatherings, but the night before, he and his team had decided that this dream that he had often spoken about might come across as trite and cliche, so the I have a dream part of the I have a dream speech nearly didn't make it in until he heard that encouragement from behind him. Maybe he realized that he was losing the audience. Maybe he realized maybe some of the things that I had planned and that I'm actually saying just isn't really landing. We don't know. But at that moment, you can see in the video, he looks up from his notes and he never looks down again. What he had been carefully reading from, then he just starts to go. And he says, 
I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And at that moment, he has completely deviated from the prepared text. We know this to be true because we can read the advanced copy that he wrote from, and then we can just watch the video, listen to the speech. He won't ever come back to his notes. And that is the part of the speech that we are so moved by, that we all remember. So why do I bring any of that up? Uh, It's not to say that you should never prepare notes for your speeches. Uh, I write every word of what I say on these Sundays. Uh, So I am confident that the Spirit can, just as the Spirit can prompt uh, and lead sermons or preachers or speakers in the delivery of Uh, the sermon, the Spirit can be just as active in preparation during the week. And most public speaking or preaching classes will just tell you to just kind of figure out what works best for you and your audience. But here's the point, that the first 12 minutes of Martin Luther King's speech was kind of operating under like a governor. It was like, wasn't able to like break free and break through with what he wanted to say because I think he was thinking that the huge diversity of his national audience, he didn't want to offend certain pockets of it. He wanted to differentiate himself from the more militant and controversial figures like Malcolm X. But once he goes off script, then he starts speaking from the heart, the things that he actually wanted to communicate with his actual convictions, with real boldness, and that is what we remember. Well, in much of the speech that Paul says, here in front of the Roman governor Festus and the Jewish puppet king Herod Agrippa II, uh, Paul is following the script. He's going to retell the story of the Damascus Road again. This is the third retelling in the book of Acts, and we'll consider uh, the reason why Luke includes it for a third time. But on the other hand, while he is, we might say, sticking to the script, Paul is going to really let loose here with two of the most powerful people that he will ever stand in front of. He's not fearful. He is full of conviction, full of courage, full of real boldness. And so that's how we're going to think about this text tonight, in two halves about fear and courage. Paul will tell his personal story and testimony of his life before meeting Jesus and after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so we'll consider his life first free from Christ, but bound in fear, And then secondly, bound to Christ, but free in courage. Free from Christ, bound in fear, bound to Christ, but free in courage. So first of all, Paul is free from Christ. That means like independent of Christ, but bound in fear. So to remind us where we left off in chapters 21, 22, 23, Paul was accused by the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem of defiling the temple, of undermining the law. He is essentially uh, being uh, accused of being an anarchist. But he addressed the people there and the council saying, no, no, he's, he's not an anarchist. He's actually very much just living into the reality of the promises that were made to Abraham and to Moses, to David and to the prophets. But this Jewish leadership, they want to kill him. So the Romans get him out of there. They smuggle him out to Caesarea. And even though there's nothing to charge him with, he sits there imprisoned in Caesarea for two years because he is unwilling to bribe his way out. Last week, we saw a new Roman governor, Festus, come in and try to figure out why this prisoner that he inherited is still sitting there. What are we doing with this guy? What's going on? 
And Festus can't find anything wrong with him, and so he suggests that he be sent back to Jerusalem just to start the whole religious trial again, when Paul then hits the nuclear option and appeals to Caesar in Rome. Get me out of here. We're going to Rome. Festus is embarrassed to send a prisoner to Rome without any charges attached to him. So he brings in Herod Agrippa, this Jewish puppet king, and his uh, infamous sister slash wife. Really weird things going on there with Agrippa and Bernice. But he brings them in to consult and figure out what to actually charge Paul with. And so here we are in chapter 26, verse 1, where Agrippa says now to Paul, All right, man. Let her rip. You've got permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretches out his hand, and he makes his defense. And he says he's actually glad that Festus, who is a Roman, new on the job, and probably doesn't understand Judaism or the Jewish people at all, actually has Agrippa here. Because Agrippa uh, is Jewish. He's glad that Agrippa is here to run the meeting. He understands the customs and the culture. He's familiar with the controversies of the Jews. So he says at the end of verse 3, Therefore, Agrippa, since you know all of these things really well, hear me out. Listen patiently. And so Paul then just starts talking. And he starts with his resume. He establishes himself as a good and noble and serious and faithful Jew. He describes his past as someone who was just like all of his countrymen. He wasn't uh, he's not, he didn't grow up as some sort of, like, part of a radical sect or something. No, he was just like all of these people all around him. But then he pulls back the curtain a little. He can't help himself from spilling the beans onto where this thing is going. He says in verse 6, And now, though, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. He's saying he's not being put on trial for some fringe radical beliefs that undermine or contradict the law or the prophets, but he is being accused and put on trial for those beliefs that are in perfect alignment with the law and the prophets. Or that is, as Jesus says in Matthew 5 about himself, that Jesus is the, is the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. They, the law and the prophets, always pointed toward and found their end goal, their designed purpose and function, to culminate and to be absorbed into the God-man, Jesus Christ, the new David, the new Moses, the new Adam. He is the one to which all of the law and the prophets have pointed to all along. And then he asks in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You know the law and the prophets. This is a point that Peter made several times in his sermons at the beginning of Acts. How so many of the Psalms and so many of the prophets looked toward a king, looked forward to a Messiah who would not taste death, who would not have, have his body corrupt into, corrupted into the ground, but in victory would defeat sin and death altogether. Like, man, Agrippa, like all this stuff is just right up your alley. Everything that I am preaching, everything that I have been making my life about, the things that I am being accused for, you should understand all of it. But then he says in verse 9 through 12, he explained who he was and how he violently opposed people who followed Jesus, who, he, who followed what he says is the way, the way of following Christ. He says that he was convinced that what he was doing was right. He was convinced 
He was following God and doing what God wanted for him. He was convinced that he was a good and faithful servant of God and acting courageously under the authority of the Jewish leadership who had delegated him to then go persecute these people of the way. But he wasn't a servant of God. He wasn't acting in courage. He was serving himself. He was serving human authorities. He was serving tradition. He was serving his own desires. He was serving his own misunderstandings and his own inclinations. He was doing what he thought God wanted, but all of this was because he was free from Christ. He was independent of Christ. He was living for himself because Jesus had come and established this tiny little beachhead this little mustard seed of the kingdom that was growing. And so to oppose Jesus, he now came to know and realize, to oppose Jesus was actually to oppose God. But because he was free from Christ, we might say then he was bound or he was actually enslaved in fear. Perhaps he would have thought it was courage. Back in the day, he would have understood his persecution of these early Christians as godly zeal, as passion, preserving God's people and protecting his, his glory from like the barbarians at the gate who were about to invade and attack and ruin Jewish culture, ruin the glory of God. He was so afraid of the barbarians at the gate that he was ignoring and perhaps even extinguishing the campfire light of Christ that was growing behind him. And so to reiterate something I said a few weeks ago, we should be careful not to make the same assumptions that God needs us as like his defense warriors out there protecting the gospel from every single real or perceived threat. Again, the gospel is not under threat. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is in no trouble at all. But we do, we do need wisdom and discernment to identify false teaching, and sometimes we even need the conviction to confront it when we encounter it in our spheres of actual influence. But especially when our discernment, when our conviction looks more like anger, looks more like vindictiveness, looks more like outrage, this is probably indicative more of fear than courage. That is, it is now up to me. I am like God's last line of defense to protect the kingdom of God. So it is up to me and other warriors like me or the gates will fall, which doesn't sound very much at all like faith in the Lord Jesus' promises that he will establish his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Courage and conviction were absolutely needed in Paul's life, but he was now a changed man. He was now not a brawler for God, not a brawler for religion, but he was now a peacemaker, finding ways to make peace as able as he was with anybody whom he was able to convince. He was an ambassador for Christ, no longer a warrior for Jesus. He was a conduit of grace, receiving and delivering to others. He was a sheep following a strong shepherd. Perhaps looking back on his past life, Paul realized that he actually didn't really need Jesus to be, to have a bunch of boldness, to have a bunch of courage, to have a bunch of conviction. He maybe didn't need the Spirit to live out his life of zeal. 
Courage and conviction are actually not fruits of the Spirit that Paul would later want to highlight as evidence of walking by the Spirit, but those of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Those are evidences of walking by Christ, evidences of the Spirit's work in ordinary believers. So, Living free from, living independent of the guidance, the direction, the life-saving power of Jesus will be a life bound in fear. Maybe not conscious, conscious fear, but a life of fear of all the things out there that could potentially ruin my life, that could potentially ruin my dreams, my way of being, my culture's way of being, could potentially ruin God's kingdom perhaps even of a spoken or unspoken existential dread of staring out into the void and not finding a mirror that will reflect purpose and meaning and identity. If indeed we were made to walk with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit, then if we are not walking with Him, if we are free from Him, then we must go on one idle hunt after another, one search for joy after another, or distract ourselves to death trying. Thankfully for Paul, the Lord Jesus confronted Paul to shake him out of his independence, to shake him out of his futile and fruitless quests for meaning, to shake him out of his zeal for what he thought God wanted him to do. And so he tells of this encounter on the Damascus Road. And I think Luke records this encounter again for two reasons, at least. One, it's important to just follow the narrative flow of Paul's testimony here. I was trying to look for ways that we could shorten what Rabo was going to read for us here, but we just had to read the whole thing. Like all of it is needed for the narrative of what we're thinking about today. And so this testimony on the Damascus Road is really, really important to what Paul is going to say after. But second, as readers of the Bible, especially if we are first century readers, when we would have memorized the, the scriptures that are being given to us, Old Testament, and now this, this, these new letters that are coming about, these new gospel accounts and new eyewitness testimonies that I think Luke really does want us to begin to memorize, especially if we don't have one of these or seven or 25 of them laying around in our house or available on our smartphones. I think Luke really wants this story to begin to be memorized. When we hear it as a first century reader, we're like, oh, I, I know this. I, I've heard this one before. I know it. And it starts to get really down deep that a former persecutor of Jesus now on a dime has his entire life and purpose for life changed. That this doesn't just happen unless Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And so, being freed from himself, coming to and following Christ, now doesn't mean for Paul or for us that since Paul has had his sins forgiven, that now he just gets to continue living free from Christ, that he now gets to continue living his life however he'd like. No, Paul so many times in his letters calls himself a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. We saw that when he was moving to Jerusalem, he said he was bound by the Spirit. 
He isn't free to live however he likes. He is bound to Christ. But being bound to Christ is actually where he is most free. And so second now, on the other side of his testimony on the encounter on the road to Damascus, now let's consider this second half of being bound to Christ, but now free in courage. So Paul, now clearly addressing Agrippa, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Their lives should change because they have come to a knowledge of Jesus. Paul boldly tells the king of how he boldly proclaimed and gave witness to Jesus. Very much like the same kind of preaching like John the Baptist was doing on on that side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, that of John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Now Paul on this side of the cross is preaching the very same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is on his throne. Ironically, Paul now stands in front of Herod Agrippa II, whose great uncle, Herod Antipas, had beheaded John the Baptist for preaching that message. But Paul says that he is only doing and saying what Jesus, who has come from heaven, told him to say and do. And that, in verse 22, help has come directly from God to do and say exactly what Moses and the prophets said what would happen. That verse 23, this is what God has helped him say, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is squarely in the I have a dream section of his sermon or his speech here. Not that this encounter with Jesus was a dream, but that he is just freely and passionately just letting it rip. And I think he is freely and passionately letting it rip because we as humans freely and passionately talk about the things that we are passionate about. Like some men in our culture can be brick walls about any kind of conversation until you bring up their favorite football team, or you say, LeBron versus Jordan, what do you think? And then a just overflow of passion, of opinions, of argument, of rhetoric. Thank you. Amen. I don't think it's a debate. But I, I mean, like I personally don't think of myself at all as like a fashionista, obviously. But, but... Jacob and Mason and I this week had like a 15-minute text conversation about newly released uh, away kits, uh, away uniforms in the English Premier League, about our favorite English soccer teams, the various merits or deficiencies of color choices or collars or button placements, uh, the changes that we would have made if Adidas or Nike had just asked for our advice. We are passionate about English soccer, so the conversation was very easy, and it was passionate. There were opinions to be had and rhetoric uh, to be made. Earlier this week, I was hanging with one of our church's medical doctors who was sharing how passionately uh, he is trying to persuade as many people around him to be vaccinated. 
Uh, with his medical specialities and experience, he certainly understands the science better than I do, who like, get my understanding from Facebook or YouTube, but he was reflecting, just thinking about the persuasion and the rhetoric that he is using every day. He's, he was reflecting and thinking, why don't I have this same kind of urgency about sharing the gospel? I said, it's probably because COVID is so in your face every day. The amount of patience, the level of suffering that he and his colleagues have seen over the past year and a half makes this conversation, to be vaccinated or not, pressingly urgent for him. And he wants others to make that decision. But really? We were then thinking? We too, the the two of us, many of us in this room, we also have not seen suffering and destruction brought about by people's indifference toward God? even if it is delayed suffering that we know will inevitably come after death? Why aren't we as urgent in these same kinds of conversation when eternal things are so in our faces, when life and death is at hand? We are all natural evangelists for the things that we are passionate about. We talk about things that we deeply care about, or as John Piper, riffing on an old C.S. Lewis quote, says, Joy is not complete until it is expressed. Joy is not complete. The joy that we have about something is not complete until we talk about it. Meaning that until we talk about the things we are really passionate about, those things can just swirl around inside and slowly atrophy and maybe die. When I saw the movie 1917, a couple years ago, twice in two days. Like, every time I had a coffee or a lunch with you, one of you, I told you, you gotta go see this movie. It's so great. I was so passionate about it. I was, I loved it and thought it was an incredible experience in the theater that I wanted you to enjoy the same things that I enjoyed. My joy was not complete until I expressed and talked about the things that I wanted you to have the same joy about. I loved it, you should too. And so what? If we don't find ourselves naturally and easily talking about the things of God with our Christian brothers and sisters, with our non-Christian friends and neighbors, what does that mean? That we aren't passionate about God? Maybe. Maybe. This week I saw a professor say, she wrote, every day, every day of our life is a teacher who begins each class with the same one-question pop quiz. What will your actions today prove that you value the most? Tomorrow morning will be a pop quiz in your life, and the pop quiz will say, what will your actions today prove that you value most? If we are honest evaluators of our time spent, if we are honest evaluators of our passions, what we talk about most, And if we are realizing that the things of God, the glories of the gospel, really does just get like the barest scraps at the table of our heart, we realize that the glories of the gospel are just kind of way out here in my life. And sometimes I think about God. Sometimes we pray before dinner. We go to church on Sundays. But the glories of God is not growing, is not growing. consuming and taking up more and more of our hearts, then we might, if we were honest with ourselves, 
find our passions to be horribly disordered. None of these passions are bad things. Soccer uniforms, basketball players, history, politics, science, none of these things are bad things, but we can horribly disorder them. And yet many sermons that begin talking about evangelism can quickly then devolve into guilt. You aren't sharing the gospel? Why not? Don't you know that people are living and dying in unbelief? Try harder this week and do better. And some of us actually need to hear some of that. Some of us need to approach evangelism with the same kind of initial discipline that we might approach Bible reading or prayer, asking for accountability in our lives, thinking through the people that we need to be sharing the gospel with who need to hear of the glories of Jesus. And some of us just need to get out there and discipline ourselves into opening our mouths But I have found that the times that I am most evangelistic are the times that I am most happy in Jesus. My life wholly bound to him, following him as a good shepherd, learning and growing in him, loving him as gentle and lowly, approachable and kind. Well, now I want others to know that too. In the same way that I wanted you to have the joy that I experienced in the movie theater, I want you times a trillion to experience the kinds of joy that I am finding in Jesus. If I'm not finding joy in Jesus, or I'm not sharing the joy that I have found in Jesus, am I really finding joy in Jesus? Guilt can be a good thing to drive us to the cross, but the cross is then the doorway to a clean conscience, toward freedom to live in courage, to live in kindness, in gentleness, in patient persuasiveness. We are a people of passions, passions that can become quickly disordered. Are there passions in your life that we need to discipline into lower rungs of the ladders of our hearts? Just push down a bit. Whatever it is, Passions about politics or sports or science or entertainment. None of these things are bad, whatever it is, but none of these things should prioritize or claim our hearts. Who needs to hear? Who, as we've asked many times over the past year and a half or two, who is your one? Who is someone in your life that needs to hear the glories of Christ? Perhaps the same kinds of people that you share all kinds of passions about with in everyday conversation. You are so quick to talk about the things that you have seen on social media this week. So quick to talk about the things that you enjoy, but yet never talk about how you enjoy Jesus, the king of your life and of your heart. Now Paul, Paul could have gotten off the hook so many times. He could have walked out of here a free man, so we might think a free man, but he would not be free if he was getting himself off the hook. He could have gotten himself off the hook with the Jewish leadership, with Lysias the Tribune, with Felix and Festus the governors, with Herod Agrippa here, but he moves towards his accusers in freely bound courage and conviction, bound to Jesus, of openly sharing his own story and of the interrupting grace of Jesus Christ. 
But this grace isn't received well. Festus, the Roman, interrupts and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You are crazy, my man. That's enough. And no doubt, Paul is very educated. He does have great learning. He not only has learning in the Jewish scriptures, obviously, but it's very clear from his letters that he was well acquainted with, that he was interacting with philosophy and culture from the Greek and Roman world around him. His mind and his heart were full of learning, were full of various passions, but certainly the things of God. And there are some who say that there is such thing as too much theology, as too much learning, as too high and lofty a doctrine. That if you begin to read too many theology books or read the Bible too much, you will make yourself of no use to those around you. And sometimes we can absolutely miss the mark in theology and learning. When theology and learning become an end goal in and of themselves, we do need to be reminded of what Augustine wrote almost 1,600 years ago when he says, so anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them but cannot, by his understanding, build up the double love of God and neighbor, has not succeeded in understanding them. You hear what he said? If you do not love God and your neighbor more by reading the Bible, you have missed the point. If you have not loved God, grown in your love for God and love for your neighbor by reading some book of theology, you have missed the point entirely. So that's true. We need to be reminded of that. But As we considered last week, what many others have said, on the other hand, that our love for God will never outpace our knowledge of God. The more we know him, the deeper we will love him. The deeper that we dig into the depths of God, into his character, his characteristics, his actions, his redemption, his triuneness. Dig into that for a few millennia, if you will, if you dare. The deeper the foundations of love that we dig to secure the larger and warmer and safer the house that we will live in in the love of God and that we might invite others into. And that's exactly what Paul's knowledge of God, what Paul's learning, his great learning is doing here. After being accused of being crazy, Paul says exactly what we thought about last week. He's not crazy. Verse 25, he is speaking true and rational words. That the Christian faith is indeed a faith, but it is a rational and historically grounded faith. You can disagree, but these are rational words for a rational and good God. And he says to Festus, he's like, look, Agrippa knows about all this stuff. He's talking to Festus, the Roman, but he says, the Jewish king, he knows about everything here. He knows about Israel's hope for a coming Messiah. He knows that he, that Jesus has come And that it should be made clear to him, to Agrippa, that from the prophets, that in the first coming of the Messiah, he would come to suffer and die rather than to conquer and destroy. Agrippa should know what is going on here. Jesus lived, died, was brought to life in the wide open public. And we are preaching in the same way, wide open and in the public. Not in a corner, not hiding, not building some conspiracy of secrets or of sedition, but 
doing so confidently, doing so very publicly. And then Paul finally turns back to Agrippa in verse 27, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. What boldness, what courage, because Paul is bound to Christ Jesus. He is not afraid in the slightest to challenge, to then like completely turn the courtroom around. Paul, the one being accused, is now, he's just put the king in the stand, asked him the questions, made him answer. He's not doing this in angry condemnation like some fiery yelling street preacher, but in love, in compassion, in the double love of God and neighbor. Because Paul knows that both the highest king and the lowest beggar must come to Christ. Each, both of them, with empty hands of faith. With a burdensome need for Christ. The ground is level at the foot of of the cross. Whether a lowly fisherman or a Roman centurion, all must come to a place where everyone must say, truly, this man is the son of God. And so you who are sitting here today, the same question, the same need for response is needed from you today. There is no middle ground. You will either crown him as king of the universe and king of your heart and then forever be bound to him in life and in freedom, or you will keep the crown for yourself. You will be free for yourself, independent to do what you like, but forever be bound in death and in bondage. And if you were honest with yourself, in fear. And again, like last week, the fruits and the benefits of coming to Christ in faith are certainly great. Life and freedom of conscience, of a new meaning and purpose, of walking with the one that you were actually created for, But coming to Christ is not merely a transactional contract agreement. Come to Christ today because he created you, because you were created for him, because he is the fountainhead of all that is good and all that is true and all that is right and all that is beautiful. He demands your worship. Demands it. Not in a way that some human king or tyrant might demand, as created beings themselves, as broken and selfish and deficient rulers, as untrustworthy or unhinged, even like the Greek gods, they do not deserve your worship. If they demand it, you do not, you must not give it to them. They do not deserve your worship. But as the center of gravity for all that is good, the grace of Christ, the grace of the triune God is now calling you to himself calling you like salmon coming up through the waters of opposition, calling you to the place of your beginning, to the place of your life, to the place of home. Do not swim back into the ocean. Do not turn from him and be taken out into the waters. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart to him. And perhaps some of you are sitting there in hardness thinking, like, seriously, man? Like, just like Agrippa in verse 28, you're like, really, man? Like, in a short time, you would have me become a Christian too? 
Like, I just came here tonight with some friends. It was, it was a boring Sunday afternoon. I did not come to have my life changed today. But here are the words of Paul for you tonight. Whether short or long, this time, I would to God that not only you, but all who would hear me might become such as I am. That is to become free in Christ, to know him, to love him, to be loved by him. But we also see Paul's sense of humor here. He's not angry and yelly. He says, I wish that all of you might become as I am. That is a Christian. Well, you know, except for these, like these chains. Like, I wish you could all become like me, except that, you know, you could walk around or something. But there's something deeply theologically there about what he's saying too. While he is in chains, Paul is the freest man in the room. Those who are walking around in supposed freedom to do and live however they'd like are actually still bound in slavery. Slavery to themselves, enslaved in death. But the grace of Christ frees the will to live and to love as it was created and as it was intended to live and to love, to free us to live and to love. So come to him. Be free. Do not respond in indifference like Festus, like Agrippa and Bernice. Indifference here, indifference from these rulers is actually committed opposition. Indifference to Christ is opposition to Christ. To oppose, even in, in indifference, to oppose Christ is to oppose God. And Christians, for those of you who have been and are following Christ, you are free in him. He is what your life is all about. All of those other passions that you have in your life, they're all good and fine. But are the other passions that you have in your life crowding out your love for God? Are other passions in your life crowding out the love of God in Christ? Evaluate. Reevaluate ongoingly. But after all of this, after all of this in chapter 26, those in charge, they still don't have anything to charge Paul with to send him along to Rome with. And so in verse 31, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Paul should absolutely have walked free, and yet he is bound to Christ in freedom. And yet, in this freedom, he is indeed bound to Christ. And yet, that is the safest and most secure place to be, and the world hates him for it. So he's now on his way out of Judea. He is loaded onto a boat and sent to Rome, which we'll pick up next week, considering what in the world a maritime voyage across the Mediterranean Sea has anything to do with our lives and our lives together as a church. It, I assure you, has much to do with our lives. So let us ask for God's help. Read chapter 27 a couple times this week before you prepare, or as you prepare to come back and gather as God's people again next Sunday. And let us be transformed into the image of Christ together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are sorry for the way that we allow other passions in our life to push you to the edges, to push you to the suburbs of our heart. Help us to evaluate rightly, to reevaluate rightly, to repent when needed. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you might fix our eyes, our minds on the Lord Jesus, on the author and the perfecter of our faith, that you, Lord Jesus, being so good and glorious, so loving and kind, so powerful and victorious, might become more and more uh, in our mind, in our heart, what we become passionate about so that we just cannot help but to speak about you to those around us. Help us to become so passionate in our uh, evangelism about you in the same way that we are so passionate in evangelism about other things. Give us courage. Give us conviction. Change our hearts as we are bound to you. We pray as individuals and together as this church. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.